Welcome to episode 39 of Contested Catch. This is an episode that I'm super excited for as we're flipping the scripts a little bit this time and with a brand new guest uh, who's going to be asking me some questions for the first time. And we're going to be talking some snake draft strategy, positional strategy for 2020 fantasy football and more. But now for our guest, thrilled to introduce for the first time, great friend of mine, a fan and follower of Contested Catch. We're thankful to have you and a big time athlete himself. Jack Winecoop. Jack, how the hell are you, my friend? I'm good, man. Thank you for having me. Um, we're really excited to be on today and, and ask you some questions because I got a big draft tomorrow and I'm trying to kill it. So let's do this. Indeed you do. Indeed you do. And you know, we've been we've been talking back and forth uh, all preseason and um, you know, excited about the season coming and obviously uh just kind of chewing on different ideas, different strategies, different player takes and stuff. So we just decided together this would be a great uh, you know, idea for a podcast episode where you can just ask some questions. We can talk through them. Um, you can, you know, air out your concerns about players or feelings about them, and then we can go from there and see, see what comes out of it. So, and I hope that this is going to be helpful for, for, um, you know, our listeners who have maybe similar questions or have been, uh, hearing mixed things from around the, the fantasy community. I think that this will be, uh, an informative episode, I hope. Um, but Jack, just to give the audience a sense of your background in sports, obviously I mentioned that you're a big time athlete. Uh, I'll start by saying that we met at the university of South Carolina where we both attended and you were obviously, you pitched for USC baseball. Um, and since then you've been able to continue your career in the sport. So why don't you talk a little bit about that? Yeah. Um, I was really fortunate to play baseball at the university of South Carolina. Um, played there 2013 through 2015 and got drafted that summer by the Colorado Rockies. And um, I've been with them for five years now, which is crazy. It's really, uh, really flown by. Um, but yeah, I've been trying to, you know, work my way to the major leagues and um, baseball has been a huge part of my life and a real blessing for me. Yeah. Just trying to grind and, and get myself up there. You know, it's been a dream of mine to play professional baseball since I was a little kid. So it's a, it's a great opportunity for me and yeah. It's my life, man. So fun to watch you go through it too, because you're just such a great guy. And I'm not just gassing you up because you're on the show, but you know, I'd say this too anyway. But uh, he's such a great guy and he's such a good influence for for younger kids trying to get in the sport and trying to become pitchers or just trying to be better at, at uh, a game that you and I both grew up loving. And obviously you're, uh, you know, a, a significant piece of a puzzle for a team. And I think that it's just really exciting to see you pursue that. Obviously, 2020 is a crazy year for professional sports. And I'm curious, you know, as a professional athlete, who who's been training and working hard to pursue your own sport in the midst of all this chaos and uncertainty, you know, what kind of insight can you give us in terms of what these NFL players might be going through as they gear up for a COVID impacted 2020 season? Well, that's a pretty good question. Um, obviously it's a different sport and a different game. And I'm not around a ton of NFL guys when I'm training and stuff, but um, I will tell you that during, you know, during quarantine and during this time um, when you're not in your, your normal setting, it's really on you to take control of your career and the way you handle your body and the way you train and, and take care of yourself. So, I mean, depending on where you live and the resources you have access to, you might be limited in some respects. So, um, I've heard, you know, people on fantasy football podcasts say, yeah, we don't know what these guys have been doing in their off season. So sure. It's, you know, different for everybody on a case by case basis. I was really lucky that during this time I've been able to train and have access to a lot of different resources to continue to develop even in a, a bit of a weird and frustrating time. Um, so, 
one thing I've noticed in baseball is that there have been a lot of injuries this season. If you watch the big leaguers um, and some of them are freak things and some of them seem like wear and tear and, and just, you know, the, the way the season stopped and started back up again um, is a different scenario than in football, but these guys I'm sure haven't had their, their normal off season. So it'll be interesting to see, I think in fantasy this year, um, you know, who stays healthy, who was able to, continue to develop and get better and i'm excited to see what they put out on the field this year man we need some football yeah me too me too i'm so pumped uh jeff and i were just talking about on episode 38 how it's just unbelievable that we're about to be here because it's been in doubt for so long um obviously you know we didn't get preseason but you know here we are you're about to draft for your fantasy football league and you know the next question for for you here is when did you start playing fantasy football and what drew you to it yeah, so this is only my third year um, of playing fantasy football, and I'd always loved football and loved watching it. I really enjoyed watching college football growing up, um, and until I kind of realized what fantasy was all about, and when you, I, you know, becoming friends with you, I obviously learned about your passion for it. So when I played um, and realized how much more fun it makes watching NFL games, um, it's something that I was really drawn to and really enjoy, and especially this year and a year where I wasn't able to compete to have something to be a little bit um, to get my competitive spirit going and, and try and beat somebody and try and win something is fun for me. So um, this year I'm trying to really take it seriously, do my research. Obviously I've been asking you a lot of questions and I'm excited to ask you some questions today. I love it. I love it. You know, you hit the nail on the head for one of the base reasons for why to get in fantasy. And I'm, I assume anyone listening to this episode it's probably already deep in fantasy anyway, but you know, if you're interested in sharing the love, one of the best ways you can pitch it to someone is that, Hey man, this gives you a reason to watch some random Sunday, four or 5 PM, you know, Cardinals versus Rams game or something that you otherwise have no stake in, right? Like now you have, maybe you're playing against Robert Woods and you've got Kenyon Drake and Kyler Murray, something random like that. It's just, it makes it so much more fun. Um, and just the whole product of the NFL opens up for you rather than maybe just the one team you were born into being a fan of. Uh, and as a Bills fan, I appreciate that flexibility. <laughs> yeah, um, it's funny because uh, one of my buddies who I play pro ball with um, has always been into fantasy and he would be talking about it and I would have no idea who he was talking about half the time. You know, guys on other teams that I didn't root for, I would be like, okay, like I think I know who you're talking about. And now... <laughs> I'm so into it. I'm saying all this stuff, telling him, you know, who I like this year, who I don't like. And he's like, Jack, you've really come a long way in three years. Like, <laughs> um, but it's funny because you really learn all the rosters and then you start to learn about these guys' stories. And it's just, it's pretty awesome, man. It's cool to learn about these guys and, um, and get to, you know, build a team around guys you like or teams you like. And yeah, it's awesome. Who's your, uh, who's your favorite fantasy football player that you just like love to root for and would love to have a part of your team every year? Um, man, I had some good ones on my team last year. I had Christian McCaffrey and he's so exciting to watch. So like turning on Panthers games, that was just, it was awesome for me to say, okay, I have the best fantasy player this year. Um, but I really like, I had Tyler Lockett last year. I really like him. Um, I started following him on social media uh, after I'd had him and, uh, he just seems like a really good dude. And he's really exciting to watch when, um, he made that catch last year when I think Russ was like, it was like a scramble drill. Like they just have that connection when 
when stuff starts to go sideways, they just, they figure out a way to get the job done. And um, that's really exciting for me to watch. I like watching that. So he's probably my favorite fantasy player. I really respect that, that pick because Tyler Lockett is one of the most underrated players, not just in fantasy, but in the NFL. I mean, we're talking about a guy who's the number one receiver for one of the best quarterbacks in the league and is just criminally underrated because the problem is he's not a big volume guy. So you don't hear his name called like, you know, 10, 15 times from 10 to 15 targets or touches. Uh, you know, he's a super efficient guy and he's just got this crazy mental connection with Russ where they've just either trained enough or are both just on the way, same wavelength with their instincts, but they make these incredible plays. And even though they've got this big freak athlete, exciting player, DK Metcalf, how can you not root for Tyler Lockett to still be, you know, a stud in that offense. So I love that pick. Yeah. I like that whole offense. I think they've got, I think they've got great attitudes and, um, good personalities and the touchdown celebrations are awesome too. Yeah. The choreographed stuff yeah. they do. I like that too, but yeah, man, it's, I mean, they're a lot of fun to watch for sure. All right. So Jack, like I mentioned, we're flipping the scripts a little bit for this one and I'm going to turn it over to you now. So fire away with any questions that you have for your upcoming draft and this upcoming season. All right. So tomorrow I've got a draft, um, 12 team league standard PPR, um, only have 14 total picks. So really like, you know, 12 guys, a kicker and, um, a defense. So we've got once and we have one spot that we can use if a player tests positive for the virus. So kind of an IR spot, but not really. It's just sort of a COVID designated spot. So, um, I've been doing some mock drafts and stuff. I won't know where I'm picking until an hour before. Um, so I've tried to draft from a few different positions and, you know, based on where I've been drafting and what I've been kind of listening to and researching, you see a lot of people who are talking about going RB, RB and getting, you know, depending on where you, if you draft like towards the end of the first round, you can get two good running backs. And then from there, it kind of opens you up to take all these values at receiver in rounds three through whatever, really. I feel like you're finding good receivers all throughout the draft this year. Um, so I was going to ask you if that's something that you've implemented in some of your drafts or if you've gone any other directions. Because I've also seen where if somebody picks up at the top, they get that anchor at running back, one of those top guys, and then hammer some wide receivers and almost go with that modified zero RB. And then they wait and take some guys and hope they pick correctly in some of those ambiguous backfields. So I was going to kind of see what your general draft strategy was. Yeah. So uh, first of all, your draft tomorrow is PPR, correct? Yeah. Okay. Um, and one thing before I answer your first question, and it's just because it just comes to mind, I talked to some of my buddies about this as well, and it's about end game, like kicker defense strategy. And in an auction draft, which is what we've been talking about the last couple episodes, uh, you can actually, you know, a lot exactly how much you want to spend on them. You could put $3 into a defense. You could put $0 because we're doing it offline typically. Um, what I would say to you, Jack, first of all, is I would put the absolute minimal investment you can in a kicker and defense because I don't think that sp spending a round or two in advance of the, you know, maybe like 13th and 14th to, to secure a good kicker or defense, I don't think it's worth it. And the other thing is I would say put the minimal investment in and then right after the draft, drop them for two players like maybe um, – well, maybe like a, a Ryquell Armstead or, or Chris Thompson. Um, I would have said that already. 
without the news that we're going to talk about a little bit later. But um, the idea is that you give yourself about a week and a half to see if something happens with the backfield or a wide receiver room or something that could dramatically increase the value of a certain player when there is absolutely zero chance that a defense or kicker undergoes that same value increase. So that's just kind of my philosophy on how to end the draft is either put no investment or absolute minimal investment and then give yourself until basically right right before the start of week one uh, to make a roster move, you know, the start of that game. So anyway, that's my thought on the very end. But in terms of your question on the very beginning, uh, I, I have been going a lot of mod zero RB. And, you know, for those that, that don't know what that means, that's that's basically start with a running back and then for the next four or so rounds, hammer, wide receiver, tight end, maybe even quarterback. Uh, depending on the value, but it basically means we're not going to be targeting running backs in rounds like two through five. Um, I know that's scary. And Jack, you and I have talked about that a lot this, this summer. The idea is that going zero RB to any degree is anti-fragile. This is something that the ETR guys have done a really, really good job of breaking down. And the idea is that instead of playing into the fragility of running backs, which are the most injury prone position in the sport, you're actually going to capitalize when that happens rather than suffer as a result. Because if you're getting guys that are in ambiguous backfields or maybe even hammering a lot of handcuffs on your bench, when these injuries or absences for whatever reason, holdouts even occur, you are primed to increase your value rather than everyone else who didn't employ the strategy is going to decrease in value for the most part. So um, to answer your question, I do like to go running back in the first round. Uh, it obviously slightly depends on on draft slot and format, but typically I do. And uh, then from the second second round on, for a few rounds at least, I'm typically going tight end, wide receiver, in very rare instances, quarterback. Okay, yeah, um, that makes sense. And I think that in my draft, I mean, I noticed this last year, but like people talk about the RB thirst in this year's draft. I think that that's going to be very real in my draft tomorrow um just from definitely kind of hearing the way guys have been talking lately and um it just kind of seems like even in some of the mocks like guys are reaching for running backs above some really really talented receivers so i feel like if i'm patient and don't freak out about that second rb slot and and maybe learn a little bit from you about who you like later on um i think that could be a huge advantage for me so um I, I agree, man. I think that basically you look at, you get a, you get a workhorse, you get someone that you feel really good about reaching their ceiling, uh, in year or in, in 2020. And then after that point, you basically secure high floor, high ceiling wide receivers, uh, and tight ends. If you, if, if the opportunity is there, um, and then you save these riskier picks, which are running backs rather than high, you know, draft investment in, in, uh, the second or third or fourth round, save it for five, six, seven where there's really not that big of a gap when you think about the downside of these players. The upside might be a little bit less in those rounds, but then you supplemented that with much better wide receiver and tight end talent. Yeah. Um, if I am picking later in the first round, let's say I have like the 10th pick. Um, I know there's a big group of running backs in that area to where I would be able to take two if I wanted to. Are there two guys at the end of the first round is like if there's a situation that presents itself where you, there's that huge chunk of running backs, are there two guys that stand out to you where you would go running back, running back? Yeah, I, I would, I would say that is one of the scenarios where I think it's worth it. I think if you start at the top, you're probably getting one of those bell cows and I don't think it's worth it to go to double tap running back in the second, 
Um, at the end of the first, I think you probably have a good shot at getting someone like Miles Sanders, who obviously we've talked a lot about, you know, absolutely hammering him this year. The risk, um, the risk profile is a little bit accentuated now with a quote unquote lower body injury may word. Maybe that's a hamstring. That's not great news if that's the case. Um, and you know, some offensive line injuries for the Eagles have increased his risk a little bit, but to me, he's still the guy that I want in the first round. If I'm not picking in the top four, um, or top five. And I just, I always throw this in there. It's unlikely at this point that he's going to fall in the first, but Clyde Edwards Hilaire is a guy that I'm crazy about in 2020. I think for very good reason. Um, and so if he were to fall to you towards the end of the first, I would take him even over Miles Sanders. So in terms of then second round, let's say we let's say just for conversation's sake, we get Miles Sanders. And now you're in the second round. Now we've got a couple of guys that have thorny RB1 profiles. And what I what I mean by that is they're not perfect. They're not like super well-rounded, um, or they've got something that is a red flag in terms of risk for 2020. I think it's obvious when you think about Dalvin Cook and Joe Mixon that that comes with the holdout risk. Um, Joe Mixon also has a, we're, we're assuming there's going to be a big jump up in offensive efficiency for this team from 2019, where he really struggled in the first half. That's still, you know, with a, a rookie quarterback. I mean, Dalvin Cook, he's missed a lot of time in his short career. He's also holding out for a bigger contract potentially. It's just that those guys aren't perfect, like surefire round one prospects anymore at this point until, you know, things get settled. Um, and so it depends on your risk appetite, but if you feel really good about maybe getting really good wide receiver value later, or really like one of those, you know, RB3 types that we'll get to, then I would say it's okay to take a first round talent that has a risk profile like a Dalvin Cook or Joe Mixon. And then even someone like Derrick Henry, even in PPR, Derrick Henry and, and Nick Chubb, I think Nick Chubb's a little bit different, but they're both guys that are seen as one-dimensional runners, not big uh, catchers of the football. That's okay in PPR as long as they supplement it with really, really good rushing ability. Now, Derrick Henry in his last, I think it's nine games, he's got 222 carries, 1,200 yards, and 12 touchdowns. That's unbelievable. And if those were all-purpose yards and maybe half of them are catches or something, um, You'd feel a lot better about him as a PPR first round pick. But so this is all to say at the end of the first round, if you get a guy you feel really good about and maybe uh, Devonte and Michael Thomas are already gone, I'm okay with double tapping running back in that situation. I don't really like it once you get away from those guys that I already mentioned. So just to clarify, if Sanders, Mixon, um, Derrick Henry – and CEH are all gone at the end of the first round. Let's say, let's say I did manage to get Mixon or Miles Sanders towards the end of the first round. If I'm choosing between Julio, Tyreek, um, Josh Jacobs, Nick Chubb, Austin Eckler, Aaron Jones, are you going with the top wide receiver at one of those two? You know, if it's Tyreek or Julio or Godwin or one of those guys in that situation? Yeah. And, and of those guys that you just mentioned, I'd probably go Julio and Austin Eckler. Uh, the reason being, I think Eckler is kind of being slept on in 2020. There's some worry about his role being scaled back. Um, they kind of had to throw him into the fire, which he excelled in in the first four weeks last year when Melvin Gordon was out. Um, but the idea is in PPR, even if he regresses in efficiency, he's still getting enough volume and he's still enough of a baller that I'm not really that concerned about about him like not returning uh, and uh, on that investment. And then 
I love getting one of those top end wide receivers, Julio or Tyreek. Um, both have somewhat of a risky profile themselves. And, you know, Julio's not the touchdown beast that we think he could be. Uh, and he's 31. Tyreek's got injury concerns, sometimes even off field concerns. Um, but still, when you get those guys, I don't really like Josh Jacobs in, in 2020 because his pass game usage is so spotty. It's so iffy, like in 2020, even though they say they want to do that. And it wasn't great in 2019. Uh, I think he only had 27 targets, despite being one of the league's best rushers. So, yeah, I think you'd go uh, elite receiver. And then, assuming you have the next pick after that, Austin Eckler would probably be the guy that I'd take. Um, and then, but I, I also have no problem with you going Tyreek and Julio at that spot. I just wouldn't, I just wouldn't double dip into that, that RB tier. I just think that like when you get Chubb and Jacobs and PPR, you're betting on two primary runners. And I'd much rather get a great receiver and a great receiving back in Austin Eckler and let the rest take care of itself. Or in some cases, two great receiving backs. So if I get Mixon and Eckler or Miles Sanders and Eckler, you would feel good about that at the turn. Yeah, okay. I, I'm, I'm fine with that as well. That's good to know because I've noticed like in the mocks and stuff, you're, you're right about Miles Sanders seems like he's falling a little bit because there was a ton of hype around him a few weeks ago. And then, um, you know, as you've seen, the Eagles seem to be trending down a little bit in terms of their health. Um, so I'm sure that's a factor. But yeah, those are guys, those are names that I've been seeing at the turn a lot lately. Um, so that's very helpful. Thanks. So let's say, let's say that I did go running back wide receiver. Um, and now in the, in the third and fourth round, there's a ton of really good guys. I mean, I'm seeing like sometimes Kenny Galladay, DJ Moore, Allen Robinson, Thielen, Juju, Amari Cooper, all these guys. Um, are there any running backs that you would consider reaching for above those guys in the third and fourth round? That's a good question. I've gotten it a lot because I think when, when I share my rankings with people or just my general philosophy, people are like, really, there's not a single guy you're interested in there. I mean, the way I look at it is like this. If you start, I know you said running back wide receiver, but if you start a double wide receiver um, in the first and second round, then I'd consider going after a guy like James Conner in the third Um James Conner is a guy that I really like, and I think you like. I'd be comfortable taking him in the third. I think he's more of like a second round player this year um, that isn't getting quite the respect he's due. But at the same time, you could get him in the fourth probably. Now Austin Eckler should be well gone by the third, but if he falls, I'm totally good with that too. But the other guys that I have as like third round ish picks, we're talking about like Aaron Jones, Todd Gurley, Josh Jacobs, Kenyon Drake. I'm I'm way lower than consensus on. I have him right at the end of the second round. Um, to me, David Johnson, Chris Carson, that's the RB tier that I'm just like not interested in dipping in this year. Um, maybe in some best ball leagues, I'd I'd take, you know, just get a couple shares just to kind of cover my bases because obviously I recognize, you know, David Johnson, Chris Carson, Todd Gurley, if they all stay healthy, they could all see 300 plus touch volume on halfway decent offenses, um, if not better. It's just not necessarily a situation that I'm enamored with. And there's just so much risk when I can get a guy a little bit later that I feel like gives me the upside profile that these guys do without the investment and with, you know, risk that's more palatable. So to answer your question, not really. I mean, if you really, really love Jonathan Taylor, I'd say you probably have to start dipping into the third round at this point. Um, but there's not one of those guys that I'm just like, if they're in, they're there in the third, you know, 
no matter what, I'm willing to take them because the other guys that are there in the third, sometimes these great tight ends, Kelsey and Kittle, who I have ranked above anyone I just mentioned. Um, and then also these great wide receivers, for instance, I love Thielen, A-Rob, and Juju. They're my wide receivers six through eight in that order. And I'm, I'm, I'm higher than consensus on all of them, but I'm doing that for a reason because I want people to see when you're using my ranks for your drafts, that if those guys are available and then you see guys like 10, 12 spots later, like Aaron Jones or Todd Gurley, there's no question who you should be taking in the third round. I like that because I think when I'm listening to some other guys, you see some of these running backs mixed in with those guys, but then they're like, but don't get me wrong. I'm still going to take the wide receiver. Well, you have, you have the running back higher than the wide receiver in your rankings. So it's kind of confusing. Exactly. But I do. It's, it's a safety like that thing point. that people do in rankings. I think rankings should really be used not to like hedge a bet and like, you know, say, well, I don't really like this guy, but I'm still going to rank him highly. Cause that's what everyone else is doing. Um, you know, I, I think everyone's guilty of that, including myself to, to a degree. I really try to make my rankings as if, if you're drafting and you see a guy, 10 spots ahead and they're both on the board, take the guy that's 10 spots ahead. And I'm doing that intentionally. I'm, I'm way above consensus on the guys that I like and I have been. And that's because I want people to use them and not have to like have a two hour conversation with me to get the guys that I'm interested in. They can extrapolate that just from how, how much higher than they've seen, you know, X player um, relative to consensus. Yeah, that's helpful. Um, okay, so let's say I've gone running back and then hammered wide receivers for a few rounds. Um, when is that? Cause you talked about, you know, some guys that have a similar upside profile, but you can get them at a better value later in the draft. Who are like, who would be my quote unquote RB two in that scenario where I wait a little bit, who'd be a good guy to look for. So um, one of the guys that I've been all over in this, for this exact scenario, Jack is, is Kareem Hunt. And that's because Kareem Hunt offers that mix of upside and floor um, at a discounted price relative to like any of the guys that we already mentioned, guys like, you know, Chris Carson, um, David Johnson, Todd Gurley, those guys already, you know, have the lead role in a, in a pretty good offense, um, but they all have a lot of injury concerns as well. So the, the floor is probably pretty similar to Kareem Hunt. Um, it's just maybe their starting off point is a little bit better. But to me, Kareem Hunt, like he was on pace last year. Jeff and I talked about this a little bit um, in episode 38, but he was on pace last year for 88 targets, 74 catches, 928 total yards, and six touchdowns. And he averaged 60% of snaps in, in his eight games. Um, the offensive line only got better. There's a new system, meaning that his role could actually expand uh, and he could eat more into Nick Chubb's rushing uh, role and not just the receiving role. But the idea too is that Nick Chubb, who's had a debilitating knee, knee issue in the past, uh, Nick Chubb could, you know, not make it out of the season unscathed. And if for any reason, any week, Nick Chubb is not active, Kareem Hunt's probably a top five running back play. And so you're getting him in like the sixth round um, after hammering wide receiver and tight end, um, you know, two through five. To me, like there's that's a no brainer. Like I'd much rather do that and get, you know, one more of these wide receivers out of that tier, like a Terry McLaurin or a DK Metcalf or a Robert Woods, rather than taking a shot on David Johnson, who, you know, God forbid he gets hurt again because no one wants to see that. But but the the odds are just that um, his his situation is not that much safer uh, than Kareem Hunt's. And so, in terms of other guys I like in that range, there's J.K. Dobbins, um, there's DeAndre Swift. 
Melvin Gordon is someone that I'm starting to warm up to a little bit more. Um, but at the end of the day, we're talking about like discounts on players that have a path to volume that I'm not like unexcited by. For instance, like I'm not, I wasn't touching Leonard Fournette before the news we got today. I wasn't touching Le'Veon Bell before that. I wasn't touching, unfortunately, really David Montgomery. Um, that hurts you. Yeah, it does hurt me. Cause I, I know that doesn't feel good for you because yeah. you beat the drum for that guy last year. I did. I did. I was uh, one of the, one of the suckers. Apparently I, I really just, I have to, um, I think I do better and better job every year of this, but I still am not perfect in checking my own optimism and I see the best case scenario for players. And I, uh, I sometimes bite too hard into that side of things and not chew on, chew on, you know, the downside. Um, Dave Montgomery was an example of that. And unfortunately, uh, it didn't work out, but he's someone that I've lived and learned from. And although I still think he could be a good player that with that preseason, um, groin injury, and just the offensive state, I'm not sold that he's someone that you should be relying on as like a volume RB2. I put him in the same tier as Le'Veon Bell, Leonard Fournette, Melvin Gordon. I would love for to see him have some success if he comes back from this groin injury because it seems like, you know, maybe he had a good learning experience last year. And it seems like there's a lot of opportunity for him if he's healthy. But um, yeah, dude, I'm sure it's not. I'm sure you're not the first fantasy football podcaster to miss on somebody. <laughs> That's very true. Very true. But yeah, so that that's that's a pretty good list, I think, of of guys that um you could target in that six set round six seven range where you're looking for your RB2. Uh Kareem Hunt is kind of at the top of the list for me. I also really like JK Dobbins and DeAndre Swift. All three of those guys have a path to um weekly utility uh in, in various situations and also have the upside of anyone that's going three or four rounds ahead of them but you're getting them for three or four rounds discounted. And so to me, those are guys that I'd rather target in that six or seven range than, um, than some of the wide receivers that might still be there. And then vice versa for the, for the wide receivers in the three, four, five range. Okay. So um, in terms of like ADP, I think Dobbins is a little bit further back than Kareem Hunt and DeAndre Swift. I think those two guys are kind of right next to each other. If I don't hit on one of those first two guys and I'm looking at Dobbins maybe a round or two later, would a Ronald Jones be somebody I could look at in the meantime? Is that somebody that you're fading or how do you really feel about him? Because I've had an opportunity to get him a couple times when people reached for Kareem Hunt and Swift. Yeah, so I'm not like fading Ronald Jones, but I'm like not enamored with him like a lot of people in the fantasy football world are. Um, he obviously has draft investment. He was an okay prospect. Uh, he had a really bad start to his career and now he gets Tom Brady. Who's a guy who's relied on his running backs for, uh, for pass catching and pass blocking for his entire career, basically. And I'm just not sold that Ronald Jones has like a stranglehold on this lead back job. And we've also seen Bruce Arians, their head coach, use a lot of coach speak and rosy optimism in the preseason to talk up a certain player only to hand over uh, the bell cow role to someone else later down down the road. And so to me, Ronald Jones is not someone I'm like avoiding, but he's not someone that I'm willing to reach a round or two on. For instance, I'd probably take him if he's still there in like the seventh or eighth round and I need a running back. But like the guys that, you know, we already talked about the guys that I'm more interested in. Um, I think that you could, if, if Dobbins has a little bit of a buffer between him and like maybe you're sitting in the sixth, then maybe, you know, Ronald Jones or a couple other guys based on the, the home site default rankings, uh, a couple, couple other running backs ahead of him. 
you know, you could just go another wide receiver there, or you could maybe reach on Dobbins and then snag someone like James White or Damian Harris in a round or two later. Uh, maybe even a Mark Ingram. I think Mark Ingram is being slept on this year, even though I'm a huge Dobbins fan and I don't like the idea of taking both. Um, we've already talked about a lot about this, Jack, but you know, it, when you take two, two running backs in the same backfield, you're capping your upside. Um, but Mark Ingram is still a guy that maybe if you miss out on Dobbins, you get Mark Ingram, who's going to have an early season role, who's still the lead running back for the best running offense in the league. Um, he's someone that I think has utility and then maybe you just trade him in, in a couple of weeks, something like that. Okay. So that could kind of get me a little bit of a floor for the beginning of the season while we wait for maybe some of these guys in the ambiguous backfields to prosper into studs. Right. Okay. So, all right. So now we're kind of getting into the middle rounds. So let's say maybe I grabbed one of those, a guy that we know has a floor like a cream hunt. Um, or Swift. Swift catches a lot of passes, right? Or that's like part of his mm-hmm. profile. Yeah, that's his, him doing that's his that profile. In the, okay. Um, Definitely. So now maybe later, now we're starting to get into some of those ambiguous backfields. So we've already hit on um, the Ravens a little bit. Is Do you have anything else for me on that? Like, obviously, Ingram seems like he's going to handle most of the work to start the season but that doesn't necessarily mean he's going to have the job for the whole year. Cause it sounds like Dobbins is very talented and doing really well in camp. Right. Right. I mean, the GM called him a three down back. Uh, Jeff and I have a little bit of a, of a difference of opinion on Dobbins um, where he sees him as a little bit like lower floor, lower upside play relative to some of these other running backs, including Swift. But to me, I mean, I look at Gus Edwards and justice Hill getting 206 combined touches last year. I think it was. And then they invest in JK Dobbins Mark in- Mark Ingram is I think 30 or 31 in the last year of his deal like at some point it's an it's an it's a when not if uh JK Dobbins takes over as the lead back on the best running offense in the league that saw Mark Ingram take you know 15 scores to the house so um I'm not necessarily saying that he's going to do that but I just think that the upside is there on any given week and if anything were to happen to Mark Ingram you're looking at like a locked in RB1 there's very few guys that you would say weekly I'd play over him so so he could have a cream hunt type ceiling. Yeah, I, d- I definitely think so. I mean, it, one of the, like Jeff's main counterpoint to that is that, okay, so you're saying, you know, you need a, an injury to hit the ceiling. I'm like, yeah, I think you probably need that for a lot of guys. Like I think Nick Chubb probably needs an injury to cream hunt to hit a ceiling because I don't think that he's going to get the receiving work without with hunt in the uh, active and on the field. Um, but I, I think, you know, to look at it that way also ignores that like, there's no guarantee DeAndre Swift escapes a running back by committee when historically Detroit has employed that, despite how much better DeAndre Swift is than uh, on Johnson. So those are my thoughts there. Okay. Um, we already talked about this a little bit. Well, we talked about one of them and Jonathan Taylor. Um, it seems to me, you know, based on what I've been reading and stuff, that Max still has a very large portion of the touches locked up. And I've also heard that um, at a camp that Taylor has a little bit of an issue with catching passes. Um, and based on his ADP Marlon Max going really late, is that a value that you see if, if I'm looking for one of those early season floors? Yeah, I, I, I think you probably could. I've kind of priced myself out of Mac a little bit. Like I've got him at RB 44. Um, I'm not like that interested in taking Marlon Mack and on any of my teams, like I'd honestly rather have Adrian Peterson. Cause I think Adrian Peterson has a better path to season long value than Marlon Mack does. 
Now, I don't think that Jonathan Taylor is a guy that you should worry about um, in his career or even in year one. The real thing, though, is, is he going to be more of a boom rookie running back right from the start, more like, like a Saquon? Or is he going to be more like a Miles Sanders in 2019 who took uh, until the second half and until a second half injury to the uh, the veteran running back in that system uh, to break out? And I honestly, I lean more towards the Miles Sanders route. Now, that still means that he's very, very useful in the last part of the season, which is the most important. But at the end of the day, Marlon Mack hasn't gone away yet. And Naheem Hines is still going to get a lot of receiving work that they aren't like super inclined to give to Jonathan Taylor until he proves himself in that role. So... Yeah, I think Mar- Marlon Mack could probably get you through a few weeks. For instance, if you're going to take like, if you're going to take a chance on like maybe a Dalvin Cook, a Joe Mixon in the second round, kind of like we t- a scenario we talked about earlier, then maybe Marlon Mack is a guy you target a, like a round ahead of ADP, so that you could uh, bridge yourself until hopefully Cook and Mixon are already back in the lineup if they missed any time at all, and if they aren't, and maybe Mack gets like you know 13 carries for 80 yards and a touchdown in Week One. You could sell that off to someone and trade that guy. Okay, I like that. Um, I made fun of you about David Montgomery, but when you talk about Miles Sanders last year, that was I listened to you on him and actually got Miles Sanders. I think in the sixth round, and he ended up being huge for me down the stretch last year. So kudos to you for for hooking Thanks, me bro. up with that one. <laughs> um, but then again, Jonathan Taylor's ADP is probably the third or fourth round. So maybe I, yeah. I'm not sure that I'm sold on, on taking him there. I may be waiting um, for hopefully, like you said, a Kareem Hunt or a Swift. Um, okay, so moving on to another ambiguous backfield, the Rams. Um, this is one that I've heard, you know, I, I would say that people are sort of 50-50 on this one. I know that um, Akers seems like the more exciting back, but didn't they put the same, like, him and Henderson were what both third round picks. Is that right? Uh, Akers was a second round pick this year, and Henderson was a third round pick the year before. But they were both the first selection that the okay. Rams made in that draft. So where where do you stand on those guys? Because those are two guys that honestly I have zero feelings or really zero idea about. So um, I'll start by giving some credit to Hayden Winks of Roto World, who's uh, you know we've been happy to have on as a guest multiple times now for Contessa Catch, and he made an amazing point, and he's done this um, you know through his work online and on Twitter as well that Cam Akers is an exceptional pass blocking running back. Cam Akers has that that great skill set, and Darrell Henderson does not. Darrell Henderson is like if he's on the field, he should probably be getting the ball because if he doesn't, he's kind of like a liability in that regard, and so. This is the other thing, too. Darrell Henderson's already hurt. Um, apparently, he has a, a mild hamstring, if I remember correctly. Um, there is some doubt if he will play week one. It's at least up in the air. Uh, will he play week one? We don't know. That's kind of the, the the takeaway there. And so the idea is maybe it is 50-50 right now, Jack. But if Darrell Henderson's limited in the first part of the season or out in, for a couple of games or something like that, that might be all that Cam Akers needs to prove that he should be the one RB1A regardless of what happens. Now, the other side of this coin is that I don't think the Rams offense, with the exception of the pass catchers, uh, is something you really want to invest that heavily in. Like I'm below, I'm low on Jared Goff. I'm low on Akers and Henderson and Malcolm Brown. I'm actually probably a little higher than uh, ADP on Henderson because I thought it was a little closer. I think that this offensive line 
has crumbled from what it was back when Gurley was a you know an all world player. Um, and I think Gurley showed that last year. It wasn't just the knee; it was just the offense and the offensive line just wasn't the same. So even if Cam Akers runs away with the job, is he going to be like better than Jonathan Taylor or better than J.K. Dobbins if he were to run away with the job? I don't necessarily think so. So he's not necessarily a guy that I'm like, get, please give me any chance to get him on my team because I know he's going to pay off if he gets a job. I don't feel that way about him. Okay. So this is, I'm not, you're not coming out and blatantly saying that you're fading this backfield, but this isn't necessarily a backfield that you're really looking to get in any of your drafts. Exactly. I'm not willing to like, like in my rankings, you'll, you'll see, I usually jump like a round or so above ADP for guys that I really like, if not more. And that's not the case for either of these guys. Okay, fair enough. Um, the next one, and you hit on this one a little bit when you mentioned James White, but the Patriots are a team that I feel like could be kind of interesting from a fantasy perspective this year. Um, Cam Newton is one of the quarterbacks that I've been seeing late that's always around for the taking, and I feel like he probably has a huge ceiling um, just based on his talent um, and if he can stay healthy. So – um, I know Damian Harris is a name that people have been throwing around and has been getting good reviews in camp, but you know, James White seems to kind of be a staple of this offense. So what's like, what's your take and what's your strategy on these guys? Yeah. So I actually think that the Patriots backfield and the Dolphins backfield is kind of similar in the way that um, they're structured, at least to the way it appears right now, but very different in the, in the game scripts we're expecting them to play. So starting with the Patriots, um, I actually really like Damian Harris's appeal. And I think James White, even though he's the incumbent veteran and um, has all this great, you know, ability to produce in this offense, amazing route running ability and all this stuff. And Cam Cam has been really successful throwing to a player that plays like him. Obviously, I'm talking about Christian McCaffrey. Um, you know, I have I have James White just two spots ahead of Damian Harris. I have James White at RB32 and um and Damian Harris at RB34. So I think that they're pretty close. Um, I think if you're in standard, I'd probably give the edge to Damian Harris. Um, although the floor ceiling profile of James White is superior to Damian Harris. Like Harris might have a higher ceiling. We don't really know. I mean, maybe if you look at New England running backs historically, you could say, oh, well, they've got like double digit touchdown upside like Eric Blunt. Damian Harris is a three down profile. That's all true. But the floor is also really low because what if Sony Michelle takes the job? What we do know is that no one's really going to supplant James White for his role. So I think it depends on where you're at in the draft. I slightly prefer James White, but I also really like Harris. And it's a, it's a backfield I'd like a share in because I really think Cam Newton's uh, ability as a runner himself is going to open up running lanes for either of those guys, or maybe even a Rex Burkett or Sony Michelle or Lamar Miller, whoever takes that job, um, you know, with the two hands. So um, with the Dolphins backfield, I think it's a similar situation where we've got Matt Breida, um, who is, is more of a pass catcher. And then we've got Jordan Howard, who's more of a downhill runner. But I, I think that like on the surface level, it looks to be similar. But Matt Breida to me is like a far superior fantasy pick for this year. And the reason is I'm not expecting the Dolphins to be like leading games, running out the clock. That's something that Jordan Howard does really well. And he did pretty well when the Bears are okay. He did pretty well last year when the Eagles were doing well. But Matt Breida is the guy that you want in that backfield, in my opinion. He's a way more explosive player. 
Uh, he's got a better pass catching acumen and, and, and tape, in my opinion. Um, and so unlike the New England backfield, where I think you could kind of pick and choose depending on what format you're in or what you're looking for, Matt Breida to me is far and away the better player in that ambiguous backfield in Miami. Okay, that's really good to know. It's very helpful for me to kind of get your analysis on which side of the coin you're on with some of these guys because um, based on kind of roster construction and stuff, I may need uh, Damian Harris if I have, let's say, Kareem Hunt more so than if I take a J.K. Dobbins, maybe I would want James White. So it's kind of it, this is nice to know kind of how you feel and then also how you see these guys, their ceiling and their floor and kind of where they fit in. Um, one last backfield I wanted to ask about, and that was because I saw today that um, Matt LaFleur said all three guys are going to get work in this Green Bay backfield. Um, you wouldn't necessarily think of it as ambiguous based on where Aaron Jones is getting drafted, but I know people are excited about A.J. Dillon and I've had Jamal Williams on my fantasy teams before, and he's an exciting player, and he can really make some plays um, when the game's on the line. So how do you feel about this backfield? Yeah, so I think the Packers are a very sneakily ambiguous backfield. Um, and I think that maybe people have forgotten that they spent their second-round pick on a 247-pound uh, beefed-up Saquon, A.J. Dillon. Um, he's literally Derrick Henry, but three inches shorter. Now, Derrick Henry has an incredible college production, so they're not quite the exact same level of prospect. But the idea is that Matt LaFleur coached Derrick Henry and didn't use him to his fullest. So let's be clear about that, too. But also, we've seen his reluctance to hand over the low to Aaron Jones. Uh, they haven't re-signed Aaron Jones yet. He's in the last year of his deal. So is Jamal Williams. And then they go and spend a second-round pick on this bulldozer uh, who would probably do pretty damn well if he were given an early-down role. Um, not to mention Aaron Jones rushed for or scored uh, 19 touchdowns last year. So it's not like A.J. Dillon doesn't have a path to some fantasy utility if he were to claim some sort of early down goal line role. So I think the real takeaway is continue to fade Aaron Jones at cost, which is what I've been doing all summer. And then continue to be aggressive on A.J. Dillon because what you're paying for in an aggressive stance on him is like maybe like, you know, a 13th round pick, depending on the league, depending on the format. Um, versus being, um, you know, conservative on him, 14th, 15th, like that, that difference there, that differential is not worth missing out on a player who could potentially be the lead back by the end of the season. Like there's a chance, I mean, Aaron Jones has had off the field issues. He's had multiple knee issues. Jamal Williams, I think is kind of a shit player. <laughs> um, to be frank, like he's had utility. He actually looked a lot better last year than uh, than I, my opinion was of him. Um, but at the end of the day, we've got two guys with expiring contracts that aren't like clear lead running backs, um, at least in Matt LaFleur's eyes. And then we've got the second round rookie who's got this incredible Derrick Henry-esque athleticism. So that's kind of where my head's at there. I'd rather be aggressive on the, on the cheaper guy and cheaper on the earlier guy. Okay. That Jamal Williams take hurt my feelings a little bit because I like him <laughs> and I, I, follow, I follow him on social media as well. And he seems like a great guy. So if I ever meet him, he, you know, I'm I, not going to tell I, him what you said. Okay. Okay. I appreciate <laughs> that. No, I, I, uh, I do. I have to say Jamal, Jamal Williams is a, like a funny guy. I like his interviews. Uh, I definitely don't itch, wish any ill will on him. Um, more so I was frustrated with him for a long time because he was so inefficient in the same offense where Derek or with Aaron Jones was 
league, leading the league in efficiency and yards per carry. So I kind of hold some resentment over Jamal Williams, even though he's a, yeah. you know, he's a fine player. Free so. Aaron Jones. I feel like a lot of that has to do with Jamal Williams. So, um, and then going back to talking about what guys were doing with their off season, I don't know AJ Dillon, but I think it's a pretty safe bet. He was taking care of his body this off season. Cause that dude, dude is this guy's yoked. My he's goodness. Yoked. Um, <laughs> all right. Well, thanks dude. That was really helpful. Um, and then another thing I wanted to talk about, and dude, I could go talk about all the positions with you all evening long, but you know, for me, um, I'm really trying to focus on running backs and wide receivers to start my draft because I see a lot of value in the late round tight ends and quarterbacks. Um, and I just, for me personally, I don't plan on really using an early round pick on either of those two positions. So, and I understand that there's some absolutely monster elite players that you can get early in the draft at both of those positions. Um, and if one of the tight ends fall to me, you know, maybe that's a situation where I take one of those guys. But as far as late round tight ends, um, let's say I'm getting into the 10th through 12th round because I really only have 12 rounds to work with before my draft's going to make me take a defense and a kicker. So who should I be looking at in these rounds? We'll start at tight end. Yeah, so I think you hit the nail on the head with both these positions. I don't think anyone should be like reaching for either because of positional scarcity. Like, in fact, these are the two deepest positions in fantasy football this year um, in terms of like how many you need to start and how many are available. Like I'm looking at my waiver wires in leagues that I'm in and I'm seeing guys like Ian Thomas who could very easily become a, a startable tight end at some point this year who's just chilling on the waiver wire. Blake Jarwin, same kind of thing. Um, in some cases, Dallas Goddard. Johnu Smith, like guys that are interesting tight end options are just chilling. Unless there's a great value staring you in the face, or unless you have a really good reason to draft one, like a double stack, like, you know, we might talk about stacks a little bit later. Um, but I, I don't think you like need to spend up on either of these positions. I like the idea of getting Kelsey or Kittle in the third round, maybe at the end of the second, depending on how the board has fallen. Uh, but that's because those guys are great players regardless of position. Like Travis Kelsey, literally his average 100 catches, 143 targets, almost 1,300 yards, and almost eight touchdowns the last two years. Like that's that's better than a lot of wide receivers are going to see, and he plays a, uh, a position um, that allows you to play another wide receiver. So in those scenarios, I like the player, but I really like, uh, you know, in terms of guys you can get at the end of your draft, I really like Mike Gusecki this year. Uh, and the reason is he's, he gets tight end, flexibility but he's really a slot receiver um he he has an, he's a 97th percentile athlete and he saw great usage once Preston Williams went down so Preston Williams is back healthy uh but a lot of other players in that offense are gone or new um and so I think Gasecki has a pretty safe path to like usable low-end tight end one numbers um and then another guy that's kind of similar that that showed up well Last year, all things considered, is Noah Fant. And so he's a 94th percentile athlete, first-round pedigree, really sh showed well as a rookie, very explosive. Um, the real question with Fant is, is Drew Locke the truth? Uh, if he is, then Fant's probably his number two option in his second year. That's exciting because there's a lot of other players there that's going to take some pressure off him, and Fant down the seam is a nightmare. But at the same time, there's some added risk because what if first-round pick Jerry Judy is the, is the number two option? Uh, what if the the new free agent running back Melvin Gordon's the, the the number three option? So now fans all the way down to four. 
So you're not going to come away without risk with any of these guys. But, uh, you know, there's also a guy like Dallas Goddard, who's sure he's the number two tight end on his own team, but he's also a great athlete. Uh, the Eagles pass, I think 67% of their pass plays, if I remember correctly, are out of 12 personnel, meaning that Goddard is more of a starting player than their third wide receiver is. So Dallas Goddard also has enormous upside. He's kind of like the Kareem Hunt of tight ends in the sense that we already know what his, his role looks like uh, on a weekly basis with the player above him healthy. But if that player goes down for whatever reason, Dallas Goddard is a top five tight end on a weekly basis. Um, and yeah, he also saw 87 targets last year and five touchdowns. So he's a really cheeky, uh, low-end tight end one, tight end two option. Uh, and then there's all the breakouts. You could look at a guy like TJ Hawkinson for the, for the Lions, Blake Jarwin with the with the Cowboys, if you want to get a cheap share of that offense. Even a guy like, and I kind of roll my eyes here, but Rob Gronkowski, um, you know, he's got double-digit tight end up or uh, touchdown upside. And that's just because of the chemistry and because of his historic career. I'm not taking him in any league, really, and that could be a big mistake. But, yeah, does he have top five tight end upside? Absolutely. We've seen him do it. You know, he was the tight end before Travis Kelsey um, for, for many years, so despite his injury risk. So those are some names to think about. There's other guys that are really, really popular in fantasy Twitter. guy like Chris Herndon. Jonu Smith is someone that keep, you, know, you should keep your eye on who could end up being the number two option in that offense in that passing game for Ryan Tannehill. Um, Tyler Higby had a huge end of the se- end of the year, but not necessarily a guy that I'm crazy about this year. I just really like the way I'm approaching tight end this year is get Kel- Kelsey or Kittle, uh, like late second, early third. And if I don't, then wait all the way till the end and get a guy like Fant or Goddard or Hawkinson or Blake Jarwin, something like that, or even Gusecki, if you want to go a little bit earlier. Okay. So, Let's say let's say I get Gasecki. I only have really twelve spots to work with. I've heard some people say, you know, because there's a lot of upside and a lot of these guys, it might be worth it to take two tight ends. In my case, would you still just take one? Because there's most likely some of these guys are going to be on the waiver wire anyways. Um, or would you take two of them? And if you do, let's say you took Goddard. If Rager's out week one, are you starting Goddard over Jacecki? That's a good point. Um, I think that there's a, a case to be made for Goddard over Gusecki in week one if, if Rager's out. But um, more so, I, I think in terms of like your strategy, if you remember what I said all the way at the top, what I would do is I'd draft your kicker and defense all the way at the end, and then i drop them immediately for players you think have upside to gain in the next one and a half weeks. Um, even if that might feel like such a short period of time and like, why don't I just get guys and I'm going to start to me, it's just not worth it. Like what if you pick up Goddard and drop your kicker and then in the next like seven days, something happens to Zach Ertz, or maybe he holds out or something for this contract that he's supposed to get. Um, the idea is that the advantage you'd get by having Goddard already on your team is enormous compared to nothing's going to happen for your kicker. So if you're going to wait late on tight end, and take a guy like Gusecki, then maybe you take a guy like Goddard uh, and drop for your, drop your kicker for him, and then just kind of see what what happens. Maybe then all of a sudden Rager is going to play week one. You're like, uh, I feel better about Gusecki in week one. Then you drop Goddard, and he lands in the pool with all the other you know high upside, low floor tight end options, uh, and you can just kind of take your pick and then adapt as the season goes on. That's the way I'd approach it. I probably wouldn't draft two because. Again, like the positional value of 
running back and wide receiver is better because you can get starting tight ends on the waiver wire very easily this year. Same with quarterback, not the case for running back and wide receiver. Okay. That makes sense. And I'm, the more we talk about it, the more I think about it, I like the idea of doing where I drop the kicker and then pick up. And tight end seems like the best position probably to do that because that can probably crack your roster easier than maybe some of these late round running backs or wide receivers for week one. Um, That's just like how I'd approach it. You, you, you know, if you see like Justin Tucker and he's there in the 15th and you're like, damn, that's the best kicker. I can get a weekly edge then you know by all means sure but that means when justin tucker has his buy are you going to drop the, this player that you you know it's, it's not that big of an investment but uh i i never want to invest in players that i'm willing to drop on their buy if, they, if i'm willing to drop them on their buy or feel stupid rostering a redundant player like a second kicker or a second defense it's just not worth it to me yeah i feel you all right um you mentioned stacks and this is something that you know, I'd obviously seen, but didn't really realize the importance of, and you sent me an article about a month ago and I read it and it was, it kind of made me a believer. So, um, one of the exceptions I think I would make to my late round QB rule would be if I took like an Amari Cooper in the third round, who I may ask you about later, because I kind of have mixed feelings about him. But if I were to take him, I think having Dak Prescott alongside him would be a pretty awesome stack. So, if I were to do that, um, the Cowboys stack, where would you target Dak? I think you have, looking at your rankings, I think you have him at about a sixth round pick. Yeah, yeah, just about there. Um, you could even reach into the fifth. I think that's a little high. There are guys that I think you could, you'd probably do better, uh, be better off getting. And then, you know, if you miss out on the stack, oh well. Um, if you believe in an offense, for instance, I really believe in the Dallas offense this year. Um, I think it makes a whole lot of sense to then eventually stack pass catchers with their quarterback. Because if you think Dak Prescott's going to throw for like 40 touchdowns in 2020, because you think that offense is just going to live in the end zone, plus maybe, or maybe he throws for 30 something and rushes for like six or seven, that's going to be a great QB one season. Um, well, you got to think he's going to throw him to someone. So why not, you know, double down on being right about that offense? Sure. You also increase your risk. What if they have a buy, then maybe you're, starting, you know, uh, wide receiver and tight end are out as well as your quarterback. Well, you know, you can, I guess, bicker about what, what the buy strategy should be when you're stacking. But to me, you really get multiple shares of an offense you believe in, and that's how you maximize your upside. And that's on a weekly basis and a season-long basis. So, for instance, I think you could probably go, like, sixth round with Dak Prescott, and I feel pretty good about that, especially if you've already gotten Amari Cooper. Maybe you started with Zeke. Uh, I don't hate I don't hate Zeke and Dak on the same team, uh, and then really late you can or not really late but later you could get uh, Michael Gallup maybe in the maybe in the sixth or seventh area. CD Lamb should be going round ten or eleven. So the, that's the way that I look at Dak and that Cowboys stack. The real ta- lesson to take away, with the exception of Zeke, is that you're kind of getting a discount on every one of those players, in my opinion. Like we'll talk about Amari, but. That's the appeal there. And then I think a similar kind of thing is is the case with the Eagles, obviously another NFC East team. But I absolutely love the Carson Wentz, Miles Sanders, Jalen Regor stack. And then even if you if you get a good price on Ertz um, or can grab Goddard late, I think you could throw one of them in there as well. And that's like a really cheap stack that I think has huge upside in 2020. 
Yeah, I I hear you, especially on the Eagles. I think that's going to be a super cheap one because I feel like they're all kind of trending down. Does Wentz have something going on? Did I see that? I don't remember exactly what the injury was, but I think someone like bumped into him or something and they just held him out for the rest of practice. Okay. I think we would have heard about it if there was an actual concern and more so like really like I roll everyone in the fucking Eagles organization is coming down with some sort of injury. Obviously, you know, news of Jalen Rager's uh, torn labrum, partially torn labrum really hurts uh, those who have been following my lead on that because we're huge fans of him here. But um, yeah, it's it's not a it's not a perfect scenario like you could, you know, a picture you could paint for like the Chiefs. But at the same time, you're getting every single guy for like massive discounts relative to the Chiefs counterpart. Yeah, no doubt. Is Wentz, would you classify him as a late round quarterback or where? Because I don't really know where his ADP is. I don't, I think you're higher on him than consensus. So maybe in terms of value, he could be a guy that I take later um, as well. Do you agree with that? Yeah, I do. I think uh, Wentz is someone I want to be ahead of, of market value on. Um, same with Cam Newton. I have them at uh, Wentz at QB8 and, and Cam Newton at QB9 right, uh, you know, right next to each other. And that's because I think both have huge upside in 2020. And I'd rather, again, be aggressive on a cheap guy than aggressive on an early guy. Like, because then your the risk reward profile is a lot worse. Like if I think Cam Newton has top five upside and I think Dak has top five upside, but I'm getting Dak for like sixth round and I could get Cam Newton in the 12th round, there's not really... A conversation to be had there like obviously Dak's floor is a lot higher because he hasn't been injured and he's got the rushing profile and he's got great receivers and everything but like I could go and you know let's say Cam gets hurt well I can drop his ass for you know Jimmy Garoppolo who might end up having a better season than him so that's kind of the way that I'm approaching quarterback this year I'm intrigued by reaching a little bit higher than I normally do for Dak Prescott because I just think he's going to be so good like I think Dak Prescott could be the QB one overall at the end of the season if everything goes right for him um, there's not, you can't say that for many other players. Maybe you could say that for, for Kyler. Maybe you could say that for Russ since he's done it in the past, but, um, that's at least my feeling. I really like Wentz and Newton. And I think they're also really cheap stacks. I already mentioned the Eagles and we already talked about the, um, the Patriots backfield, but you know, you could get a James White, Julian Edelman, Cam Newton stack going, and that's super, super cheap. The idea is that you can get really cheap shares of both of those offenses. Like Deshaun Jackson's basically free and he's going to be a week one starter for the Eagles. Nikhil Harry, basically free, could be a week one starter for the Patriots. He's had a rough camp, but the idea is he's still a second year player with a decent profile. So it's kind of like combining a late round quarterback strategy with emphasizing stacking. Now that also frees you up to then pursue best player available early on where maybe you are not as inclined to take Amari Cooper as you would be someone like Allen Robinson, but maybe you're like, well, if I take Cooper, I could stack him with Dak. Well, it kind of frees you up to then have a little bit more flexibility and go best player available where it really matters rather than like a need based approach. Yeah. I like that, especially with the, the cheap stacks because it's really low risk, high reward. If it works out, you're not really using a ton of um, your draft capital on those guys. Um, because then you, you can pivot and you haven't invested too much to really like, you know, squander a bunch of draft capital. Uh, you know, if you, if, if Cam or Carson Wentz, you know, get hurt again, well, you can probably, you know, pick up maybe even like a Matt Stafford who's being completely slept on this year, or maybe a Jimmy Garoppolo or Baker Mayfield. Like any of these guys has big upside. I, I wouldn't rank them where I have them uh, if I didn't think so. And 
you know, you could probably end up with a share of their passing offense too, if you tried. Yeah, no doubt. All right. Well, there's a few, there's a few just quick player takes. I want to ask you about, if you don't mind, if you have time, um, Absolutely. a couple of these guys are considered flyers. Uh, the first one being heard of Samuel who, I had on one of my teams last year and just, man, if he, he was like a couple inches away from having some of the biggest plays of the season, like, and that was shown in your, in your air yard chart. Um, and, but this is a new year with a new quarterback, a new offense and Robbie Anderson thrown in there. Where are you at on him this year? Yeah. So Curtis Samuel is a guy that like, I want to be excited about again. You know, he's only 24. He's not even 24 yet. I think he's still like, I think he's 23.9 or something like that. And he's in his fourth year. Uh, he's, he's got a hundred percentile 40 yard dash time. He's got 14 touchdowns the last two years. Um, he's got a new and better quarterback system uh, relative to last year. And, you know, his terrible, terrible quarterback play last year ruined the ninth most air yards in the league. And that was what you're alluding to, which is he showed up every single year on the AOC, which was the air yards opportunity chart that I was doing last year. And it just hurt, you know, every single every single week to watch him have all this opportunity that was being squandered. Quarterback, you know, couldn't hit the the broad side of a barn. Um, so he's probably going to play slot wide receiver in a more crowded offense this year than than he did last year. Uh, last year he was he was pitch and hold into a deep threat role, and I don't think that's the best way to use his skill set. Even though he's got that patented speed, so they bring in Robbie Anderson and. People would say, well, okay, he's got ninth most air yards last year. Now he got Robbie Anderson. He's going to take that role. So what's left for Curtis Samuel? Let's remember what Curtis Samuel did really, really damn well at Ohio State was use his 4-3-1 speed uh, to be a, a running back wide receiver hybrid. And so if you've got Curtis Samuel running across the formation, maybe getting little little scheme touches or screens or even some in some cases handoffs as well as underneath targets complementing DJ Moore and the more vertically inclined Robbie Anderson, um, I think that's going to be better for Curtis Samuel. It may not be as high of a, an opportunity ceiling that we saw last year, but at the same time, like he was basically only playable if he scored a touchdown, and that's not a guy that you feel comfortable in your flex. So the way that I look at it is Curtis Samuel's probably better off this year than he was last year just because his floor feels like it's going to be a lot higher and, you know, they had an opportunity to trade him this year. I think people would have probably paid up for Curtis Samuel. And uh, the, the new regime for the Panthers decided to hold on to him. They thought that he's an essential part of this offense. So um, one one other thing to say about him, though, is I've been fading all year uh, players with new quarterbacks and new systems. Both those things happen with Curtis Samuel. But I think when we consider what the new quarterback and new system mean for him, better fit for an opportunity for him and a much better quarterback, than Kyle Allen was for Curtis Samuel last year. I think he's almost like an exception to the rule because it's pretty obvious to project increases across the board uh, in terms of efficiency and and uh, you know more better fitting opportunity. Okay, would DJ Moore also be an exception to that rule, or are you fading him at his current ADP right now? You know, it's hard because I'm a little hypocritical on DJ Moore because he's young and this really really exciting prospect. Um, you know, the things he's doing at his age are very few receivers have done that. Uh, and yet I'm majorly fading DeAndre Hopkins, who's a few years older, um, because of the, technically the same situation that DJ Moore has. So it's, it's very, uh, you know, on point of you to bring that up. Uh, the reason that I am not fading DJ Moore to the same degree 
is because, again, he produced what he did last year with the worst quarterback in the league, basically. He did that because he's just an absolute baller. And uh, the the target concentration, like he was just soaking up medium range uh, targets. And that's very lucrative when you're getting a lot of them. I think that this offense is going to be more efficient than last year by a long shot. And I think he is the focal point of it besides Christian McCaffrey. So uh, the other thing about the, the Panthers offense that I didn't mention yet is really their defense. Their defense is probably going to be the worst in the league, uh, or at least has a really good chance to be the worst in the league. And that's going to lend itself to some very high volume, high scoring matchups where we want to share in those games. And that share might be an early round uh, DJ Moore or might be a later round Curtis Samuel. I think I can, I think I can get with you on that um, because it has to be an upgrade, right? I mean, Allen really struggled last year. Um, all right. So this is another one that I've been hearing. Anthony Miller. Um, if Trubisky's still in there week one, is he still a guy that you like late? It's tough, man. Like, so I've got, I've got Curtis Samuel at wide receiver 43, uh, right at 100th overall in my current iteration of my rankings. And I've got, um, Anthony Miller at wide receiver 52 and 114th overall. So I'm not like out on Anthony Miller, but not prioritizing him. Like, you know, I've seen a lot of people on fantasy Twitter be really excited about Anthony Miller's prospects this year. The, you know, the appeal is obvious. He's the unquestioned number two wide receiver on a team that should get a major QB upgrade with Foles. Um, you know, he saw, uh, I think it was 80 something targets last year. He's probably going to get hundred plus targets this year. Um, I think he's a worthy bench dash, but the problem is we don't know the quarterback situation. If you ever assume rational coaching, you're probably going to shoot yourself in the foot, which is, um, unfortunately very possible whenever you're betting on the Chicago offense outside of Allen Robinson. So yeah, Anthony Miller has appeal. Um, but I mean, I wouldn't prioritize him other than like, you know, Oh, this is a, this is a guy that could be a volume wide receiver, uh, in the late rounds. Like, I'll tell you a guy I think has a pretty similar profile is Jamison Crowder for the Jets. And I don't believe in his quarterback very much, but his 16-game pace was 133 targets and 934 yards. So uh, he's got less competition in, in 2020. I think Jamison Crowder is like kind of a better version of Anthony Miller, and they're probably going around a similar place in the draft. Yeah, I agree with you on that. For some reason – when I see his Crowder's name come up as I'm going through drafts, I'm like, I get excited when he's available and I'm not really like a stats driven guy. I just have a good feeling about him this year with the situation they're in. Hopefully Darnold takes a, a step forward. Um, but yeah, I think, and then um, Chris Herndon as well. I feel like those two guys could take up a pretty good share of those targets if they, they definitely could excel this year. Um, okay. Uh, now getting into just a few more takes. Uh, I mentioned this earlier that I didn't know how to feel about my boy Amari Cooper this year. Last year, I just feel like he'd go on the road and he just wouldn't show up sometimes. And I think Gallup reaped the benefits of that a lot. And Gallup's a guy I like a lot this year um, and would love to stack with Dak Prescott if they weren't kind of going in like a similar range. Um, but how do you feel about Amari Cooper this year? Do you think because he was a little bit banged up and he's tough and he's playing through stuff, he was just kind of out there to distract the defense a little bit? Um, I could see that being an excuse for why somebody would be very high on him this year. What's your take on Amari Cooper? 
Yeah, so I think uh, I think you hit the nail on the head in terms of Cooper's um, volatility. Like, you know, he's a he's a player that has a high ceiling on a week to week basis because he's a really good route runner and he's got a good quarterback and he's on a good offense. But for whatever reason, he doesn't show up game in and game out. You know, he's not in that upper echelon of wide receivers. I don't think uh, at least he hasn't earned that place yet. But at the same time, um, in twenty five games with with the Cowboys now. Amari Cooper's averaging five catches, eight targets, 77 yards, and half a touchdown. He's still only 26 years old, and he just got paid big time. So, yeah, the Cowboys took a, a wide receiver in the first round. It's my wide receiver won in this class, CeeDee Lamb. And, yeah, Michael Gallup actually uh, looked at sometimes like the better receiver. But that's because Amari Cooper was, A, hurt in 2019, and, B, receiving the bulk of you know the really heavy coverage from a defense so that frees up Amari Cooper, or, um, excuse me, Michael Gallup to get some of those easier plays, um, and, you know, just against worse competition. So the way I look at Cooper is I'm totally okay with with being above market on him because I think he is the best share of one of the best offenses in the league, if not the best offense in the NFC. Um, and because he's the number one wide receiver for Dak, and I think Dak's going to go off this year, and I think Amari Cooper what he might lack in raw volume, like, you know, the way that someone like DeAndre Hopkins might've had uh, in 2019 with the Texans, he might not ever get to that like 140, 150 target area without injuries to his team. Um, I think he can make up for efficiency and hopefully his stability improves as teams are absolutely forced to focus on more than just Amari Cooper. Like when you've got Zeke, when you've got CeeDee Lamb, when you've got Michael Gallup and even Blake Jarwin down the seam, you can't put two or three guys' eyes on Amari Cooper anymore. So that's kind of the the hope in 2020 for Cooper. And really the, the floor play here is that you're getting a share of the best offense in the NFC. He's an easy stack with Dak if you want to reach a little bit on a quarterback. Um, I think he's got a capped ceiling, but he's still a guy that I'm totally good with getting. Like their, their offensive line is great. Their offensive system is due for an improvement uh, considering we're going to McCarthy from Jason Garrett. Uh, and his quarterback is playing for hundreds and hundreds of millions of dollars. So I think that Cooper is a good guy to bet on in, in 2020. Um, and, you know, at the end of the day, if he doesn't work out, it's not like you're paying a top five wide receiver price tag on him. Okay. Um, if you do go with an Amari Cooper, do you ever, and this could be said for, you know, that type of receiver, a guy who could just have an insane week and win you the week, but could also show up the next week and maybe not produce. Do you ever go with try to pair him with a different wide receiver who's more of a target hog, maybe like a higher floor slot guy? Like, do you ever, in terms of like roster construction, do you ever think about that if you use one of your higher picks on a guy like that? Yeah, yeah. I actually, I actually asked like almost the exact same question of JJ Zacharyson when we had him on this summer, and the reason is because I think it makes sense, right? If you get a guy that has like a higher week to week ceiling but a lower floor, aka more volatility, um, then you pair him with a higher floor guy that maybe you mitigate uh, some of that risk of the downside and you could secure more of like a 25, 30 point uh, week from those two wide receivers, but with also the upside for maybe a 50 point week um, between the two of them. That's, that's fair. Like you could think like that, but I think the other thing is anytime that you're, you're um, intentionally capping your upside by getting a floor play uh, you're kind of risking you're you're in some ways playing not to lose rather than playing to win. And so I would more so look at it like, yes, Amari Cooper is a has historically been volatile, but 
just because he's been volatile doesn't mean I should pass up on a guy like Terry McLaurin because I think a guy like maybe a Tyler Boyd uh, has a higher floor is it's perceived on a weekly basis. Like take the better player, regardless of what archetype he's in, because uh, intentionally capping your upside by by trying to get a floor. If you're wrong on that. Like, it's better to be wrong on the upside, I think, than wrong on the floor. Because if you're wrong on the floor, then you've got a guy that you're depending on for 10 points a week, and he's shit, and he's getting you like two or three. Whereas if you're not getting the upside, hopefully at least their real upside is, is uh, you know, higher than, you know, an, an average player would be. Okay. That makes sense. I noticed you almost said Gallup right there. Um, yeah. And they're on the same team. And that was actually my next question, because we've talked a little bit um, – Julio Jones and Calvin Ridley are both guys that you really like. And I know that with running backs, you don't usually take two running backs on the same team. Cause like you said, it caps your upside. Would there be right. a scenario because you're higher than consensus on Calvin Ridley this year. And there might be an opportunity where you can snag both of those guys. Would you consider taking both of them? I've actually had a couple friends who have been using my rankings for their drafts in the last couple of days, um, sent them over to them. And they've they've ended up with Julio and Ridley. Um, one case it was because he kind of forgot about having Julio, but uh, I still think that he was recognizing that the value was there for Ridley later on. And I think it's a little scary to double dip on an offense like that in the same position. You know, if you were to get like let's say uh, maybe Marquise Brown and Mark Andrews and have Lamar Jackson, well, you still probably feel pretty good about that because they're all really good. Uh, and all have upside and floor in their own right. When we're talking about the Falcons, specifically Julio and Ridley, I think it is a little scary because what if one of them goes off and the other doesn't? That's capping your upside, right? That's the argument I make against running backs. But the other thing is we're talking about Matt Ryan. He's probably going to throw the ball around 40 times per game. Well, if the target con concentration is as narrow as we think it's going to be in Atlanta this year, then Julio and Ridley both have a good chance for us, like an above average approaching wide receiver one, if not both in wide receiver one range. And so then if you add in adding Matt Ryan as your quarterback, then if he throws four touchdowns and, and two are to Ridley and one's to Julio and they combine for like 200 and something yards, you've got a really, really good week that week just from those three players. Again, it maximizes your weekly upside it does consolidate your risk too. Like what if what if Matt Ryan gets hurt in the first half and now your quarterback's fucked plus your your two wide receivers aren't going to do as well. But the other thing is Matt Schaub actually kind of went off last year when he was thrust into action. The idea is that, yes, you're consolidating your risk, but if you believe in that offense, then we're talk talking about the same thing as the, the case for stacking. It's a little bit riskier, but when I have Ridley ranked right, at, you know, right outside being a wide receiver one, um, and Matt Ryan inside the top 10 wide receiver or quarterbacks, Julio inside the top three wide receivers, don't pass on a better player just to get a share of a different offense. Okay. So you're not saying that that's something you're going for, but if Ridley starts falling and he's there for you, you're not going to hesitate to take him if he's the best value at that pick. Right. Like if you think Calvin Ridley's a better bet this year than Mike Evans and they're both available and you already have Julio Jones, don't take Mike Evans just to get someone else. Like, take the better player regardless of the team. Now, I'm not going to go out and say I want every single Atlanta Falcon because of X. Like, I just think that that is getting a little too risky. But at the same time, there have probably been years where that's worked. I think it's I think it's really risky. 
But, um, you know, when we talk about stacking, the, uh, the appeal is that you're getting multiple shares of a good passing offense. And when they go off, which you think they should frequently, uh, if you're going to stack them, then your whole team goes off and you want to win each week. So you don't want to not lose. That's the real difference in the aggressive mindset um, and having a risk appetite that allows you to also have a huge chance for upside. Dude, thank you so much. This has been huge for me and I hope it's huge for the listeners out there as well um, who are following you. Um, from my perspective, you know, it's hard for me to get a lot of this information on my own. I don't necessarily know what to look for. Not a huge analytics guy. So to be able to ask you questions and you give me some data to back it up, as well as just kind of like your feeling about it um, is huge for me and helps me because I feel like we're on the same page with a lot of these things. And sometimes getting your opinion kind of solidifies my feelings and helps me with my strategy. So dude, I can't thank you enough. This is awesome. I'm really glad you feel that way. This was a lot of fun. I enjoyed getting the questions asked of me. <laughs> you know, Jeff does it on occasion, but uh, but I, I did enjoy flipping the script there. I've got one last thing for us to talk about here, just to finish up. Um, and I think this will kind of like wrap up what I hope was really helpful uh, for people that are about to draft or maybe earlier in their fantasy careers. Uh, and that's, Jack, what's something that you struggle with during fantasy football drafts or even when you're on the clock? You know, what's something that you think we could kind of talk through that could help you on draft day, that uh, individual aspect? Um, I think like the, and I think we covered it a little bit, is the backup plan. So if let's say I went with that running back and then hammered wide receivers, and I really want Kareem Hunt in either that fifth or sixth round, and somebody reaches for him. Now, because you gave me some other options after that, I feel like I can recover. Whereas in other drafts, like I had my guys, like last year's draft, I had guys in the third and fourth round and they were taken and I panicked and took Antonio Brown and Devontae Freeman. And I hadn't done my research. I had no idea Antonio Brown's situation and didn't really know much about Devontae Freeman as a player. So those were two players that luckily I found out how to trade them. And I had to really grind all season to try to make up for those terrible picks, but like just being able to have, okay, now I have two draft strategies. I have guys I can go to if I don't necessarily get my number one target at that round. And then also knowing in some of those ambiguous situations, kind of the player profiles, what does this guy do? that this guy doesn't. And if I have somebody that already does what he does, maybe on the next ambiguous backfield, I go with somebody with a little different profile. That is something that I learned today that in years past, I did not know and I think would make me panic. Um, and panicking while you're doing your fantasy draft is not fun. I think fantasy football is supposed to be fun and you're supposed to feel like you crushed your draft. So I think uh, that side of the preparation is probably the biggest thing. People, when they see those ambiguous backfields, JJ Zacharyson, who's you know uh, a pioneer of of looking at these in a certain way, um, when you look at them, a lot of people, if they don't feel super strong one way or another, they'll avoid them altogether. When the idea is that no, they're ambiguous, meaning both players have a decent shot to emerge as a a, a deep player that you want out of that that team, and maybe even a really good player for that season. So reframing how we look at these things and saying, well, I have an opinion one way or another, but really 
I'm okay with getting a share, even if it turns out to not be worth it, because at least you're not, it's not like an ambiguous backfield where you're taking Aaron Jones in the third round or the second round. And you're like, oh, I don't know if he's even going to be the same guy he was last year or, you know, wh- whatever the situation is. You, if you're looking at a real ambiguous backfield, they're probably all coming at discounts. And so you're still getting upside at a discount at the end of the day. Um, and then in terms of the backup plan, um, I think that it's really important, especially in 2020, for people to look at their drafts like a very moldable situation and not a hard and fast, these are the guys that I'm going to come away with. In years past, I've been like the latter because, you know, I want I want to pair this guy with this quarterback and I really like this running back because of his volume floor and whatever this, the reason is. This year, it's just so uncertain and so chaotic that I really think you need to be looking for value at every position. And maybe you have a general idea like, yeah, I'm going to go like kind of mod zero RB. But what if like Derrick Henry falls to you in the middle of the second? You know what I mean? Like, don't ignore value when you see it, when it stares you in the face and do enough research or at least just like think through enough scenarios that you can adjust on the fly and not have to A, throw out your whole strategy because you made a pick that you didn't account for or B, ignore value because you want to stick to the strategy that you built up already. So that's like kind of the best way I think you should approach 2020 is be flexible, be prepared because a lot of guys are probably like, Oh, I listened to a couple podcasts. Oh, I saw these rankings. I see what the default rankings are. I'm just going to wing it or I or or they're going to try to fit, you know, a square peg into a round hole in 2020 and that's not going to work either. So, look for value, be prepared, have your backup plans ready. Uh and also think about tiers. That's the last thing I'll say. In my rankings, I have tiers. Um you 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 see them all over the fantasy industry. The idea is that you can dip into you know, a wide receiver tier and maybe you really want Terry McLaurin, but then he's gone and DJ Chark is there. You can still kind of stick to the same strategy if you're drafting based on tiers and not just straight up rankings. Yeah, that uh, that's definitely a helpful tidbit because I never even really think about tiers. But I mean, I guess you can kind of formulate them in your head a little bit, but that's why I'm going to have your rankings pulled up tomorrow so I can look at groups of players instead of just have that one name and as soon as I see that name go off the board, I start freaking out. So thank you for that too. Sending me the rankings is huge. And yeah. I recommend that once you put those out, that everybody go and look at those because it really does. It has some answers to some of the questions that I've been asking over the course of the last month. I appreciate you saying that, my man. Um, I hope they work well for you. And I got to say, Jack, thank you for being our guest today. This was a great episode. I think there's a lot of good tidbits in here and some good strategy for snake drafts, positional strategy, and just how to approach fantasy in 2020 that I hope our listeners will find useful. So Jack, thank you. Dude, thank you. I appreciate it. It was a lot of fun. Good. And it's great to finally get you on here for your first time. And thank you all for listening. We hope you enjoyed and we hope to catch you next time.